Welcome, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to this morning, this day, and this opportunity to be together in community, which is a time of joy, comfort, and sometimes challenges. Since I'm Anna Gresh, and I am a member of this congregation of Wausau's First Universalist Unitarian Church. Since 1870, UU Wausau has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. You are welcome here, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background, race, gender, or where you are on your spiritual journey. You are welcome here to join us as we proclaim worth in our spiritual journeys. You are welcome to join us as we sing songs that uplift our very beings. You are welcome to join us in community as we learn, live, and love together. All are welcome as we worship that which gives us each meaning and value. No matter what you call this building, this hour, or this gathering of people, we worship as one body illuminated by the light of the chalice. I want to call your attention to an announcement in the yellow pages of your program, your um, guide, this morning about the Community Cafe follow-up. Uh, that's going to happen right after service in the atrium. Uh, members of the Social Justice Committee will be standing uh, by their respective stations of um, becoming a green church, fair maps and gerrymandering, reproductive rights, immigration, and racial justice. Uh, to answer any questions you have or to listen to any comments you have, and please participate after the service. Thank you. Now for the lighting of the chalice. Let's Say these words together with me, please. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light the symbol of our faith as we gather together. And now hymn number 361, Enter, Rejoice, and Come In. remain standing and join me in our church's affirmation. The words are in your order of service. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow in harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant 
with each other in our doxology. at my report cards, a consistent comment would have showed up, something along the lines of, Jessica is a wonderful student. However, she never stops talking. <laughs> Silence and I were strangers for many years. And now, as the mother of three, whose home is filled with joyful noise, I have learned that I yearn for silence. Because especially during times when our minds and hearts are filled with a storm of emotions, it is important to have time to be quiet, to be still, and to find our center, to reconnect our mind, body, and soul, and to be, remind ourselves and to be open to the possibility of love and good in the world. So this morning I wanted to join, invite you to join me in one such practice with a body prayer. I'm going to show you the motions, then we're going to go through it once together, and then we're going to pray in silence for three times. So, can everyone see me? Mm -hmm. We're going to begin with our hands in front of us in prayer pose, palms together, to find our inner quiet. Then we're going to bend and reach to the ground to touch our Unitarian Universe roots, and love that runs deep. And I find it's easiest to stand to do this, but you are welcome to move your body in any way that feels comfortable for you. Then we're going to come up from the ground and we're going to reach for our hearts and invite the strength and kindness and compassion from one another. We're going to lift our hands high over our heads. Actually, I screwed this up. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm ditching the paper. It's too hard to get loose. We're going to begin with our hands in center in prayer pose. We're going to reach down and touch our Unitarian Universalist roots and bring up the strength of our communities and love to our hearts. We're going to put our hands out in front of us, offering each other our gifts of kindness and compassion. We're going to reach our hands above our heads to reach out for all the world might have to offer. We're going to bring back those gifts of love and kindness from the world. And we're going to enter end in prayer pose. Great. We're going to go through this three times together in silence. Thank you for going through that with me this morning. And thank you for grace and permission to mess up and then start over again. So even though our children's classes met early this morning, I'm going to invite you to join me in singing. May peace surround you to bless each other and those who are joining us from afar. invite everyone to join me in the spirit of prayer and meditation. I always start to pray by putting my feet flat 
on the ground. Feel the earth that supports you. Take a moment, call attention to your heart beating. Take a breath and be thankful for it. Call to mind this community. And let us journey into silence with these words. Spirit of life, we know our help comes from you. But sometimes we find it hard to understand how you can be among us and around us and within us, and still there seems to be so much pain and sorrow in the world. We see the spoiled fruit of broken promises, the wounds of pent-up anger, the pain of relationships betrayed. We long for healing, for those around us whose lives are burdened by poverty and disease, for those in places where anger flares as violence and war, and for ourselves, for we know all too well how we contribute to the pain around us. Holy God of love, help us speak truth to power like prophets of old and new who advocate for the good of all. And hear now our prayers for those in need and for ourselves. Help us to be the salt of the earth, humble and faithful. We offer our prayers for those in pain and need by raising them within the silence of our hearts. Now let us call to mind the joys and sorrows in our lives, and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please remain seated for our prayer hymn number 352 in the hymn book, Find a Stillness. religious community is like a river, formed from the many streams of our lives that meet and merge 
and flow to the sea. As members and friends of this religious community, we share our time and our energy, our creativity, our imagination and vision, our talents, skills, and gifts, and the streams of all of our individual lives create a river that is both deep and broad, a river that is made of many streams that sustains life and refreshes the land through which it flows. But the river of this community also depends on our shared financial support that makes real our shared values and visions. The mission and ministry of UUWASA is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time of COVID, we've placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or a recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thank you for your support. This morning's reading comes from a sacred Buddhist text uh, translated to the chapter of eights. I did some research on this. I was very fascinated by it. And it's among the very earliest of the Buddhist literature ever written and published. And it's believed to have been written sometime around the year 500 before the Common Era, maybe even during the lifetime of the Buddha. It's a poem. It goes like this. The creature concealed in its cell a man sunk in dark passions is a long, long way from solitude. Hard is it to let go of what drives us. Hard to be free from the wants that cleave to the thrill of being alive, hankering for what's gone and what's to come, hungering for those delights now. No one else can save you. Obsessed in dumb pursuit of pleasure, you embark on a lonely, unbalanced life, and you cry out in anguish. What will become of us when we leave here, be someone who practices now. Don't be thrown off course for the sake of what you know to be unbalanced. Life is short, declared the wise. I see people tremble on this earth, compelled by a thirst for what's going on. Weak men gabbling in the mouth of death, their thirst for something and nothing unquenched. You see them for what's theirs like fish in shallow puddles of an arid gorge. When you know this, act unselfishly. Form no attachment to what's happening. Embrace what you meet and don't be obsessed. Subdue desire for both dead ends. Avoid indulging in what you reproach yourself for. The wise are not mired in views or words. Embrace what you perceive and cross the flood. The sage is untied to possessions. Having extracted the arrow, take care. Don't long for this world or the next. 
That's the end of the reading. So in the last 50 years, the global population has more than doubled. Air traffic has increased sixfold since 1980, and the rise in shipping has basically drowned out the ocean's regular soundscape. And by the year 2030, it's estimated that more than 2 billion cars will be on the road. It's rapid changes like this that led the ecologist Gordon Hempton to say that one of the most endangered things on earth is silence. So in 1951, the quest for silence, it led the American composer John Cage to an Anne Echoic chamber at Harvard. I had to look this up. Does anybody know what that is? I had no idea either. So I had to look this up. An Anne Echoic chamber is a room designed to absorb every discernible sound. It's the closest thing to perfect silence on the planet. And so Cage's compositions, if you've never heard of John Cage, they were experimental, and he was deeply curious about many things, but especially he was curious about the nature of sound and the nature of silence. And so Cage was radical in his belief. Here's what he thought. He thought music could come from anything. So when Cage entered the anechoic chamber, he expected to hear pure silence but that's not what happened. Here's how he described the experience, quote, I heard two sounds, one high and one low. And when I described them to the engineer in charge, he informed me that the high one was my central nervous system in operation and the low one, my blood in circulation. So even in a room designed for silence, there was noise. Now, I'm no scientist, but I did a little Google research, like you're supposed to, and I couldn't find anything that says that the central nervous system makes noise. My best guess is that that high-pitched sound Cage heard was, I don't know, probably tinnitus or something like that. I don't really know. Or maybe it was this other phenomenon that I read about called otoacoustic emission, 
which, get this, it causes the ear to emit its own sounds as the cochlea's sensory hair cells respond to stimulation. None of this really matters for what I'm going to preach this morning. I just think it's really cool. So it's believed that Cage's search for silence inspired him to, to compose this piece of music called Four Minutes, 33 Seconds, in which a musician sits at a piano for four minutes, 33 seconds, and what do they do? Nothing! You should really Google this thing and waste four minutes and 33 seconds of your life. It is oddly entertaining. The only thing you hear in this composition is the ambient noise of the environment in which this piece is being performed. The point of all this is to say that silence, even something close to it, is very hard to find. But silence, as we know, is needed for human flourishing. Scientists have long held the belief that quiet, much like nature does, it calms us. It grounds us and it even has the power to heal us. And even though there's mounting research that proves quiet makes us healthier and nature makes us happier, humankind, for whatever reason, is destroying quiet places faster than we're even killing off the Earth's species. And we're doing that pretty fast. And so let's get real. Most people fill their days with noise and distraction from the second they wake up and they reach over and they retether themselves to social media or whatever it is you look at. I look at Spelling Bee on the New York Times. I'm addicted to that puzzle every morning. But don't worry, this isn't a back-to-nature sermon. I couldn't preach one of those sermons with authenticity because, I don't know if any of you know this, I hate camping with a religious passion. But what I hate more than camping is I hate noise. So here's a short personal story about how endangered quiet is, even here in our lovely town of Leafy Wausau. So this summer, I had one of those days that starts off like a rocket. I'm sure you've had one of those days, and maybe today's a day like that. You wake up, you slam some coffee, you scarf down some breakfast, you shuffle off to finish something that you had started the night before, and then you pop out and you mow the lawn, and then your neighbor comes over and asks if you can help carry something heavy up from the basement, and then you go back inside and you grab a quick shower, and on your way out of the bathroom you get into a, just a little argument with your child, just for old time's sake, and then you rush out the door by halfway putting on your sandals, to go buy stuff for a barbecue you forgot that you had agreed to go to. So to summarize, this day is a very productive and satisfying 21st century American day. And this is kind of an aside, and I don't know about you, but when I function like this, whenever I just rush and rush through a day, there's a point, oftentimes around midday, when I hit the wall. Now, I don't mean that I literally hit the wall, but what I'm saying is that my energy hits a barrier. I had the spiritual teacher in St. Louis, and she recognized this tendency in me, how I have this style of living in which I just pursue things with such intensity, and I avoid checking in to see how I'm feeling. And so instead of taking a moment to catch my breath, what all of us need to do, which our doctors tell us we need to do, I sometimes just sort of soldier on through a day. And when this happens, I don't even notice when I'm getting grumpy or snippy. But thankfully, this good teacher, she helped me understand how important it is to take a moment of quiet. So on this summer day that I barreled out of bed, I did that rare thing, and I recognized that I needed to stop. And so I poured some lemonade, I pulled the hammock, or as you in Wisconsin say, hammock, under the shade, and then I settled in for a time of quiet and prayer, which is code word for just a nap. And so just as I laid down, I heard it. That terrifying, miserable cacophony of noise otherwise known as a lawnmower. The only thing on earth eviler than a lawnmower is a snowblower. And I'm going to preach that sermon this winter. But just as one mower started, what happened? I heard another one fire up somewhere off in the distance. 
And so I ran inside my house and I grabbed my phone and my headphones and I turned up music as loud as my iPhone full let me turn it up because I needed more noise to drown out all of the other noise. And so later that same evening, my wife and I, we thought we would relax by this little fire pit we have in our backyard. We would just enjoy a nice, quiet summer evening together like civilized human beings do. But no, we couldn't help but laugh at all the intentionally loud vehicles that drive around Wausau as soon as the 8 o'clock hour hits until midnight. Have you guys noticed these cars that drive around Wausau and they're so noisy? What on earth is... Anyways, I should just... I believe this. I sincerely do. If Dante Alighieri were alive today and he were to write the divine comedy, the part that he wrote about hell, he would have to imagine a tenth layer of hell. Why would he have to do that? Because that's where people who modify their cars to make them louder would go. They deserve to go to hell. Every time, every time I see someone on a Harley Davidson or someone driving one of those trucks with the massive wheels, I understand why people are Presbyterians. It makes perfect sense to me because people are depraved. Anyways, I should stick to my script. So Fenton Johnson, he writes for Harper's Magazine, and he has this to say about modern life's constant noise. This is a quote. The multiplication of our society's demons has been accompanied by a ratcheting up of the sources and volume of its background noise. The chatter and diversions of our lives, things like Twitter and Facebook, Instagram texts, they serve to keep the demons at bay, even as we are creating demons faster than we can create noise to drown them out. Environmental devastation, global warming, the growing gap between the rich and the poor, unlimited consumption held up by international media and most of our leaders as the glittering purpose of life. That's the end of his quote. So I think Johnson's getting at something deeper than just noise. He's getting at our desire to be distracted from the truth The truth that life as we know it is changing at a speed that outpaces humankind's ability to evolve with it. And so when this happens, Johnson suggests we're no longer responding directly to issues, and so we avoid them and give our attention to anything but that, whatever that is. And so here's an example of what I think Johnson is saying. So have any of you ever gone into a room and you felt like you're somewhere and you're nowhere all at once? Has anybody ever felt like this before? So there are times when I go to the local schools and I mentor students and there will be like 15 kids in a room, but none of them are talking to each other because they're all on their phones or laptops. I don't think this is necessarily totally bad behavior. I have a smartphone just like everyone else. But for me, this behavior gets at something Franz Wright wrote about. And so Wright, if you don't know this poet, he had a troubled relationship with his father. And he wrote this haunting poem. And he describes a moment that he's sitting right next to his dad. And he has this feeling that he describes like this. I'm sitting right next to my father. And yet I felt star far away from him. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been next to someone, someone who you even know, but at the same time, you felt star far away? Research says that most of us feel like this. The ratcheting up of the world's noise separates us not only from one another, it separates us from ourselves as well. And since the pandemic started, I have noticed, and perhaps you've noticed, an uptick in articles that discuss the seemingly countless ways things are not going well with the 21st century person. And a few days ago, someone from church, they shared an article with me that discussed how three quarters, get that, three quarters, three quarters of today's workers plan to quit or find different work within a year's time. Three quarters. It's also noticed, noted how the youngest working generations, the millennials and Gen Zers, are quitting jobs in record numbers, citing, of all things, depression, unrealistic expectations about productivity, an inability to relax and unplug, and a desire to live and work authentically away from the never-ending rat race. 
Now, some critics of younger generations, they say that the younger generations are self-absorbed and narcissistic. And I'm sure that this is true to the extent that all generations are narcissistic. I mean, a generation, a generation still alive today, just bear in mind that they name themselves what? The greatest generation, right? Narcissism isn't new. What's different, and I'm indebted to the Irish novelist Sarah Rooney for this insight, is that even though much of life is spent staring at glowing screens, there's a point at which the constant noise of disasters in the world, it just breaks through. And so younger generations have grown up with this constant awareness since birth, and some argue that they've grown up with this awareness since conception. So Haitian migrants, we just saw this. We can't avoid seeing things like this. Haitian migrants getting grounded up by men on horses with whips. People in Louisiana still without electricity or running water after Hurricane Ida hit a month ago. And we're seeing in the news right-wing populism that continues to grow in power throughout Europe and the United States. Try as we might, we can't turn this stuff off. And I think part of what leads people to search for new ways of living is a reaction to the fact that the current economic and political system just cannot harness all of humankind's needs because it never has and it never will. Something more than a paycheck or a professional title is needed for all of that. That's the burning angst in the heart of the young people that I hear, and I applaud them for taking the time to listen. But from a religious perspective, none of this is new. Science is just now starting to catch up and recognize that solitude and silence need to be cultivated. Even the Wausau School District which isn't exactly a bastion of progressive thought, has now started teaching the leader in me curriculum that takes a starting point that the belief that academic achievement isn't, in fact, the only thing that matters. Who would have thought that it took till 2021 to figure that out? It turns out that valuing diversity matters, relationships matter, and emotional intelligence, it matters. Our kids need to be told that living a life of constant noise is in part forced on you, but in part it's also a choice. And adults need to learn this too. And then they need to do a better job of modeling healthy quiet. Slowing down and keeping silent isn't as easy as just being alone. Silence, in fact, it has to be cultivated. We have to train ourselves and we have to define it and we have to stabilize it. After all, what happens when you try and quiet your mind? Anybody want to shout it? What happens when you try to quiet your mind? I'll be really revealing. So I don't know about you, but here's what happens to me. For like two seconds, I am the planet's best meditator. For two seconds. For those two seconds, and it's probably not even two seconds, I can sit so still and be so quiet before I start making a mental shopping list. I'm already pre-balancing my checkbook. I don't have a checkbook. I just needed a sentence about that. I'm trying to remember if I went upstairs and unplugged the iron, and then I'm like opening one little sliver of my eye to peek over to see if maybe someone has texted my phone and they need me more than this quiet. Does this sound familiar to anybody who tries to be quiet? So Michel de Montaigne was a French aristocrat, and he was brought up by a strict and pious father who forced him to speak only Latin for the first six years of his life. He forbid his son from speaking his native French to ensure that his pride and joy could undertake a humanist education that would give him the tools needed for a successful aristocratic life. So Montaigne grew up. Montaigne got married, and he had seven children, of which only one child survived. Now, Montaigne was fast-tracked for prestige and financial success by his parents, like many kids are today, and eventually, Montaigne, he occupied a seat on French Parliament. But at 37 years old, Montaigne, bur uh, Montaigne he burned out. Does this sound familiar? And so what Montaigne did is he sold his seat on Parliament and he retreated to the family estate to devote himself to reading, writing, and meditation. 
Montaigne even built this special tower. It still stands to this day and has three levels. One level where he can sleep, another level where he could read, and another level where he could study without having to waste any time traveling throughout his palatial estate. Why am I telling you this story? I'm telling you this story because even with all the money in the world, even with the special tower constructed to contemplation, Montaigne said this, quote, My mind was like a runaway horse galloping all over the place. It gave birth to weird and fantastic monsters, one after another, without order or design. Montaigne said that when he started trying to be silent, he couldn't get the galloping horses in his mind to stop. And in a rather amusing essay, he says that what he started doing was he would write down all of the nonsense that would muddy his thinking. And he wrote this stuff down. This is a direct quote. He said, I started writing this stuff down because I hoped in time I would make my mind ashamed of itself. Maybe all of us need to have a galloping horse journal that would just walk around. We shame ourselves everywhere we're going. I don't know. But the point of this isn't to say that we need to be like Montaigne or the Buddha or Jesus, all of whom had the luxury of stepping away most any time they liked. And I don't believe that the task is to choose between a life of solitude or a life of action. I think the task is to embrace both and to learn how to find a healthy balance. As the ecologist Hempton, who I told you about earlier, said, we're so busy trying to see the world, but listening, listening is what tells the real story. He goes on to say that when you're listening, and by that he means truly listening, a whole new universe is revealed. To listen, you first have to be quiet. You have to set aside time in your days to listen to your life. The world and its decline in silent places, they will not do it for you. And so you have to teach your kids and your grandkids how to do this. And you have to take time and you have to incorporate this into your relationships. Here's what I find most humorous of all. What's most humorous is that in the end, one of the things that matters most for our lives turns out to be something that most of our friends have told us a million times before. And what have our friends all told us? Shut up. But now, in a churchy kind of a way, you can add this. Shut up, because your life depends on it. Amen. Now let's rise in spirit or body and sing our closing hymn, number 131, Love Will Guide Us.
don't forget that after the service, the Social Justice Committee has tables set up for you to see how you can get involved with various ministries in the congregation. And next week, I want to put a shameless plug. We have Joan Browning joining us from West Virginia. Joan Browning was in the, one of the original Freedom Riders in the 1960s, and she has been published in several books, and she'll be here to talk about how faith informed the work of uh, the civil rights movement in the 1960s, and also specifically uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee of which uh, she was a part. So with that, rather than reach out with our hands, let us reach out with our hearts. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear, may it lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. You're welcome to have a seat Enjoy the postlude. I'll be eager to say hi to you as you make your way out.